Before that, you can turn, of course, to John 17. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 10, but we're really looking at verses 6 to 10, but we want to begin with the beginning of this prayer ringing in our ears. Now, Lord, as we open Your Word, You're the one who must speak. It does no good for simply a man to say words and claim that they're Your Word. Lord, we ask by Your Holy Spirit You would own Your Word. You would feed Your sheep. You would tend Your flock. You would instruct. You would rebuke. You would correct. You would encourage. You would strengthen. And You would give assurance to Your sheep. For this we pray in Jesus. Amen. John 17.1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. I've manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me. And they have kept Your Word. Now they know that everything that You have given Me is from You. For I have given them the words that You gave Me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from You, and they have believed that You sent Me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. All mine are Yours, and Yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This is the Word of the Lord. I said last time that as we open this passage, we're a bit tempted to slip the shoes off our feet because we really are on holy ground here. As Jesus, our great high priest, lifts His voice in prayer to the Father in preparation for His final sacrifice. The cross is ours away. And just as the Old Testament high priest would pray for the people he was preparing to represent in the presence of God, so Jesus begins to pray for us, for whom He will just shortly take to the cross with Him to save. And so as we saw last time, Jesus begins this prayer by praying for Himself in verses 1-5, to now asking the Father to glorify Him in these final moments as He lays down His life and sacrifice and finishes the work that He came to do. But then, in verse 6, where we begin this morning, we see Him shift the focus from Himself and what He came to do to us for whom He came to do it. Uh, specifically, in verses 6-19, through 19, He prays for His disciples, meaning literally those who are standing there around Him in that moment. But then look at verse 20. Notice what he says down in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples there with him then and there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Meaning what? Well, meaning, dear believer, you. If you are in Christ, 
you were on His mind as He went to the cross to pay the purchase price for your sins. And so as we listen in to Jesus as He prays here for those He's come to save, including us who are His, those who are His true disciples, let's hear what He has to say. And oh, what a privilege this is for us that we are given this this vantage point to hear the prayer of Jesus. So what do we see? First, notice that Jesus' prayer here makes His mission clear. He came to make God the Father known. Look again at verse 6. At the beginning, He says, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Now, that's a summary of Jesus' entire mission. The world is lost in darkness, blindness, and ignorance of God, as we've heard. But Christ came as a light to pierce that darkness so God can be known. Uh, This word manifested literally means to shine the light on something. uh, To put the spotlight on it it so it can be seen and known. So in this world of darkness, Jesus is the light by which God can be seen. John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I have manifested, I have revealed, what? Your name. Now, why the name? What's in a name? Well, remember, in the ancient world, to know the name was to know The person. In the ancient world, a name wasn't just a label that you put on someone so you could get their attention when you wanted them. A person's name revealed their character. It told you who they were. To know the name was to know the person. Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other. Or think about Moses in Exodus 34. When Moses asked God to show him his glory... Do you remember what God did? First He said, I can't just show you my glory. Unveiled, it would kill you. Right? No one can see me and live. But then God took Moses to the mountain. And there we're told the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In revealing His name, God showed Moses who He is. He revealed Himself to Moses in a real and a personal way. And of course, Moses only caught a glimpse of God there in that moment. He couldn't see God's glory face to face. But notice, He heard the name. And now Jesus has come to do more for us than God did for Moses on that mountain. Jesus has come to reveal the Father fully. To make God known in a way that is real and personal and intimate. John 1.18 At the beginning of this Gospel, it says no one has ever seen God, and that would include Moses. No one has ever seen God face to face. No one's had this full-on face-to-face encounter with God except the one and only God, the Son, the Beloved, the, the One who is begotten of the Father, the One from the Father's side. He, He has made Him known to us. And so the mission of Jesus is to make God truly known through the grace of salvation. And you remember we saw that last time, verse 2 and 3. Jesus said, Father, 
You've given me authority over all flesh, each and every person who lives on this planet, so that I may give eternal life to all those whom You have given me. And this is what eternal life is. It is to know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. What is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing God through Christ. Do you know God in this way? Do you know Him? See, that's what the mission of Jesus is all about. It's not just keeping your body out of hell, though that's a wonderful side benefit. (laughs) But it's bringing your whole person into a genuine knowledge and experience and fellowship with God. So Jesus prays, Father, I have made you known to them. To them? To who? To who? Well, that's the second thing. Jesus' prayer tells us who these genuine disciples are. Notice how he describes them beginning in verse 6. I've manifested your name to whom? To the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The death of Jesus on the cross will not save all people, but it will save all those entrusted to him by the Father. Notice how Jesus takes, and notice how the Father, I mean, takes initiative here in verse 6. I manifested your name to whom? To the people whom you gave me out of the world. The people that God has laid claim to. The people God has chosen to give to Christ. And we're, we're back to this fundamental principle we saw last week. This fundamental principle of Reformed theology or, or really of any biblical theology. That God did not just toss salvation out there in a general sort of way hoping maybe some would be smart enough or pure enough or good enough to get hold of it for themselves. But God sent Christ to rescue a specific people given to Him by the Father from all eternity for whom Christ would then come and offer His life as a redeeming sacrifice. You see that's who He is praying for here. I've manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were and You gave them to Me. So God has a people and He has given that people to Christ to save. And now Jesus goes on to describe that people as He prays for them. And He's going to tell us five things about these genuine disciples. Five characteristics of a genuine disciple. First characteristic He gives us. He tells us that a genuine disciple has been taken out of this world of sin and darkness in order to belong to Christ. Again, verse 6, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Notice again that it begins with God. God takes action to rescue undeserving sinners out from this world. I mean, remember our starting place of all theology. Many of us are in Genesis right now, and we'll see this next week. The world is fallen. And that fallenness includes you and it includes me. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Beginning with Adam, our forefather, the whole world has been in rebellion and is still in rebellion. And God would have been just and right and good to leave us there. 
every last one of us, and let us all perish in our sins. God could do that and still be righteous, holy, and just. But in mercy, God has chosen to save some out of this world to rescue us from our rebellion and to make us His. And so that's, that's the first thing we need to know about those who are truly His disciples. They've been separated from the world in order to belong to Christ that He might save them and that by an act of God's sheer mercy. See, it's not because they're any better than anybody else. We must understand that. It's not because they have deserved this or done something to merit it. It's not because you're smarter or more righteous in yourself. It's because God has chosen to give them an undeserved mercy and rescue them from their sins. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10 will say, But you, speaking to believers in Christ, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that God has saved to be His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's the first thing. Jesus' prayer tells us a genuine disciple has received the undeserved mercy of God. A second thing we see here. A genuine disciple, because of this grace, will keep hold of God's Word. Look at that last line in verse 6. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. One distinguishing mark of a genuine disciple is that he or she holds fast to God's word. They take hold of it. They believe it. Uh, Here we're moving from what God did to make us disciples to what we do in response to His grace as disciples. And so now we're looking at the human side of this equation. God begins the work of our salvation in eternity by choosing a people and giving them to Christ, but we can't see that. right? That's hidden in eternity. I can't see into the mind of God to know who's, who, who are, as He calls it, who are elect and who are not. I can't see that. But here's what we can see in ourselves and we can see in others we can see how the grace of God works its way out in the lives of those He chooses to save because they hear the Word and they believe. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, speaking of this one time, said, if God had chosen to paint a yellow stripe up the backside of every one of His elect, I would run through London lifting up shirt tails to see who was and who wasn't. But He hasn't given us a yellow stripe. He has given us a gospel to proclaim. And so I go through London proclaiming the gospel of Christ and every time someone repents and believes, I say, behold, here is one of God's elect. Those whom God has chosen by grace and given the gift of salvation will be seen as they embrace His gospel word. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, listen to his language. He says, and we also thank God constantly. We thank God because He's the one that did this. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So the first mark of a genuine disciple is that you take hold of God's Word. 
You treasure it. You, you believe it. You believe the Gospel. You hold fast to the Bible as God's Word where Jesus is revealed to you. And of course, by implication, those who don't hold fast to God's Word, those who toss it aside in favor of other things, they are not true disciples. They haven't received His grace. They don't belong to Him. Have you received this Gospel Word? Believed it? Are you banking on it? A third picture of a genuine disciple that we find in this prayer of Jesus is this, that a a genuine disciple, because of this word, a genuine disciple knows who Christ is. You say, well, of course they do. No, no. I mean, they really know Him. Verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Look at those first three words. Now they know. That word know is in what's called the perfect tense. And and that means it it pictures a deep and abiding kind of knowing. We we could say that they truly know. Uh, That they truly know. That they really do see this. And what is it that they truly know? They truly know, notice it, Jesus. Remember again verse 3 from last week? What is eternal life? Eternal life is this, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says, now they know. Now they really know Me that that everything that I have came from You because of who I am. And so the disciples' eyes have been opened uh, to to see with great confidence that Jesus really is the Son of God and God the Son. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that they're never going to doubt again. They're never going to stumble again. They're never going to fall from time to time. Uh, Just a few hours from now, Peter's going to deny Christ. Thomas is going to doubt the resurrection even took place. These are all fallible men. But here's what's changed. Now, at the very core of their lives, despite whatever doubts they may continue to struggle with, there is this solid state conviction that Jesus really is who He claims to be and will do all He's promised to do. I can doubt a lot of things. I don't know about you, but I can doubt a lot of things, especially about myself. Will my faith hold when it's really tested? When I, when I get cancer or I, I'm facing some terrible loss or persecution, will my faith hold? Uh, could I get stupid and fall into some terrible sin, do something that brings shame on my Lord? I hope not. But I really don't know. But here's what I do know. I know that Jesus is faithful and will keep His ever promise to me in the Gospel. I know that. And so another genuine mark of a true disciple is that we are convinced to the core about the truth of Jesus. We doubt from time to time. We struggle. Yes, we can sin and get stupid, but we know Him. We are sure about Him. And so we cling to Him with every fiber of this faith God's grace has given us. Amen? Then there's a fourth thing about a genuine disciple. A genuine disciple receives God's words into his life as God's Word. I mean, listen carefully to what he says in verse 8. He says, For I have given them your words, notice the S, that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know that I came from you. Notice not just God's Word in that broad sense that a disciple receives. It is God's words, plural in particular, 
meaning all of them. Word here is not logos like you might have expected, uh, which would mean God's message overall, God's word in this large general sense. That the word used here is chremata, which means an utterance or here a series of utterances. Uh, we might say every little word spoken by Jesus, every utterance of His lips. Uh, the point being, for the Christian, it's not just a matter of accepting God's Word in a general and theoretical sense where we say, oh, I believe the Bible. It is receiving and treasuring and acting on all the words that God has spoken, every last one of them, every jot and tittle, as He says elsewhere. Do you understand? Jesus has no throwaway lines. There is not an utterance of His mouth that is unimportant or inconsequential to our lives or that does not carry His full authority over your life. Which means we don't get to pick and choose which of His words we will believe and obey and which we will simply ignore or refuse. Because to disbelieve or disobey a single word of Christ is to disbelieve and disobey God. Every one of His words carries the full authority of the Father. Jesus made that really clear in John 12, verse 49 and 50. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. That's true of the words of Jesus. That's true of all of God's words in the Bible. Not just the red ones. There's this movement called Red Letter Christianity that accepts the red letters but but feels free to neglect the dark letters. But you understand they didn't have red ink when they wrote the Bible at first. Um, they, They didn't distinguish in that way. And nor can we... 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. And so as you open this book and you read these words, you are hearing the very voice of God and listen, you are bound by them. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, For the Christian, for the genuine disciple, God's Word is something we treasure. So so a genuine disciple will be known by his or her attitude toward God's words. Isaiah 66, verse 2, which I plan on preaching here in a few weeks, says, but this is the one to whom I will look. God is speaking. Here's the one that I welcome. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Which means there's a reverence. We hear these words with awe, with reverence. We take hold of them as a precious treasure never to be let go. We receive them into our lives gladly, whether they lead us to shout, Amen! Or whether they call us to cry out, Oh me! We yield to them. Because these are the words of our God for our good. And we can say with the psalmist, Oh how I love your law! And you see, that's that's not your attitude. Instead of receiving these words, you reject them, you neglect them, you ignore them, you resist them. What on earth would make you think that you are indeed His disciple, a Christian? 
A Christian is someone who receives and treasures and believes and obeys His Word because it is through His Word that we gain a sure knowledge of God and the assurance that we are His. And there's the fifth picture He gives us. A genuine disciple, He tells us, has an assurance that will center his or her life on Christ. Look at the rest of verse 8. He says, I've given them your words that you gave me, that, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now this, this is the language of an assured faith. This is the language of a firm confidence centered on Jesus. Notice how he emphasizes that. He says, because they've treasured your words, they have come to know in truth, or we could translate that, to truly know or to know with assurance that I came from you. Then he piles another phrase on top of that one just to, just to give it more emphasize, emphasis, and they have believed that you sent me. They both know and they believe. And again, we see it's all about Christ. It's all about seeing Christ. It's all about believing Him, uh, trusting the truth of His Word. That's... That's how you begin to gain a genuine assurance. Dear one, assurance doesn't come from looking down inside yourself, trying to decide, am I good enough? Am I pure enough? Am I strong enough? Did I do it right? Assurance comes from looking to Christ. Believing the promise of His Word. Resting on it. That brings us then to this, this last big thing. And that is to notice then, here in Jesus' prayer, that Jesus' prayer gives us a solid reason to have an assurance we really are His. The very act of His praying and the things that He prays gives believers a firm assurance. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says, I am praying for them. Oh, boy, that's sweet. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me out of the world, He means, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Just camp out on those first five words. I am praying for them. Isn't that comforting as a believer? Okay, so who's the them? Well, again, the them means the disciples, the very ones He's been describing in these previous verses. And, and so He's praying for those the Father has given to Him, those who keep His Word and believe His promises and have come to know that He really is the Christ. In other words, He is praying for genuine believers. Again, verse 20, not just praying for these disciples standing around me, but for all those who through their gospel testimony will come to believe. And that means, and I want you to take this very personally, that means, dear Christian, if you are in Christ, He's praying for you here. He is interceding for you. Take that to heart. As He prepares to go to the cross to lay down His life for your sins, it's as if He has come and taken you by the hand, laid His arm around your shoulder, placed His hand upon your head, and begun to pray for you by name interceding specifically that all that He has done and all that He has done on your behalf and is about to do as He goes to the cross, that all of that will accomplish the salvation fully that He's promised you in His Word and that indeed you will receive the full benefit of it. Notice 
He says again that he's praying for the very ones the Father has given him to say. The language here is just, well, there's a tenderness here. As Jesus talks about us as those given to him by the Father, as those given to him. In other words, don't, don't miss this. Throughout this passage, he sees us as a gift from his beloved Father. He sees us as a gift. Us! Us! Whose sin will cause Him such pain and send Him to the very depths of grief. And yet here He is before the Father saying He cherishes us as a gift the Father has entrusted to Him. I have a guitar that my father left me. I'll never be able to play it like he did. It's a 1945 Martin 017 you know a little bit of the guitars, you should at least be a little impressed. It's a bit beat up. It's been through the ringer as he carried it around from his uh, late teens and early 20s all the way through the rest of his life. It's, it's got some scars, but let me tell you, I love that thing. I love that guitar because he treasured it. And he loved it. And he gave it to me. Far more than any guitar, Jesus loves us as those the Father has treasured and given to Him. And so he says in verse 9, I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for these. These whom you have given me, for they are yours. They're yours, and I love them the same way you do. Now, what did he mean though when he says, I'm not praying for the world. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. I thought God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him would not perish. Well, notice here He is making a distinction. Sometimes in Scripture, world is used in a sort of general way to mean uh, either the whole of mankind or the whole of a particular region or, or the whole of a particular group <coughs> without any particular uh, definition of who He's talking about. But in other places, like this one, It means the world as a system in rebellion and hostility against God. Here, he has in mind this world around us in its absolute determination to continue in its sin and rebellion right through to the bitter end. Uh, The world that is at war against God, the world that will not be saved, the world that lies under His judgment. So Jesus says, "I'm, I'm not praying about that. I'm not asking that you change your mind about those who continue in rebellion. I'm asking for these you chose to save and gave to me. I'm asking for the ones you sent me to lay my life down for. Father, let what I have done be fully accomplished in every possible way so that they receive everything that we have promised them. Father, let this carry through perfectly to the end. Now, as Jesus prays that, do you think maybe that's a prayer the Father's going to answer with a great big affirmative? So this is what I want you to see. This prayer offered by Jesus gives you as a believer in Christ solid ground for a great assurance. The reason, one of the reasons you can have great assurance in salvation has nothing to do with you whatsoever and everything to do with Him. Do you see it? Jesus is interceding for you, Christian. That's why we call this the high priestly prayer. 
Before the high priest went in to offer the redeeming sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, he would specifically pray for those he was about to represent in the presence of God as if carrying them in on their behalf. Now Jesus is doing the same thing. Only now, while that Old Testament sacrificial offering by the priest was merely symbolic and temporary, offered again and again and again, this one is once for all offered by Jesus. It's real and eternity. It can't fail. His prayer and what follows it guarantees our salvation. You ought to dance a little bit. You know, there are some, one of the problems in evangelicalism is those who claim that an assurance in salvation comes from a prayer that we have offered, that you pray and ask Jesus into your heart. And if you begin to doubt, then you go back and remember that you prayed and ask Jesus into your heart. And so there's this sense that assurance comes from looking back on a prayer. What I want you to see here is that, yes, actually assurance does come through a prayer, not yours, His. Not yours. His. It's not a matter of pray these words. It's a matter of trust the Savior who intercedes for us. By the way, no time to go into it, but if you do belong to Him, He didn't just pray for you there. He's interceding for you now. Romans 8.34 What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's Romans 8.31. Here's 8.34 Who's going to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the Father's right hand, and who indeed is interceding for us. Friend, you find yourself struggling with your faith. You find yourself wondering if you're going to make it. Go back to Christ. Remember that He has prayed and is praying for you to give you an assurance as you rest in Him of a sure salvation. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1.6 says, will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Friend, that is the confidence we're talking about here for those who are genuine disciples of Christ. And that, that brings me to this final thought. Final thought. And that is that our security then, our security comes from the fact of God's claim on us through Christ for His glory. Verse 10, All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Do you hear the language of claiming here? It's all through this passage. They're mine, and they're yours. And here in verse 10, there's this sort of a double claim on our lives as the Father has taken hold of us and given us to the Son, and the Son has taken hold of us in the name of the Father to carry out everything the Father has sent Him to do. Again in Romans 8, now verse 31, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, and this says He is, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? To just picture it, the Father and the Son have laid claim to us to give us a solid assurance of salvation that we might indeed be to the praise of their glory. Reminds me so much of John 10.28. Jesus says of His sheep, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me, He's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. Claimed by the Father. 
given to the Son to carry with Him to Calvary where salvation will be done. Assured that it is finished, His gift we will receive for we know that He continues for us to intercede. So Jesus says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And this is secure because I am glorified in them. You remember God's chief purpose of all things to glorify His name? Salvation glorifies His name. Now, we've got to think about that. Just last little thought. How's that work? How's that work? That we glorify Him. I mean, we, we who bring Him nothing but our sin. How do we glorify Him? Well, we glorify Him by receiving all He has done by faith alone. I mean, listen, if, if we had some little bit that we got to contribute to our salvation, then we could claim some little part of the glory. You know, Lord, You did most of it, and I appreciate it, but I did my little part, so I should at least get some credit. But if it's all of grace, all a gift, if it's all His doing, then we get the gift, but He gets the glory. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not at your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Listen, Christ loves being our Savior and saving us in this way because this is how He and the Father get the glory. We get the hope, we get the assurance, but all the glory belongs to Him. And that... That reorients the whole of our lives from looking down inside of ourselves and trying to dredge something up from within ourselves or or making much of ourselves or boasting in ourselves to turning and making much of Him alone. So then whether you eat or drink, 1 Corinthians 10 says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God gets the glory through our redeemed lives offered back to Him in gratitude. Last verse, John 15.8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Our redeemed lives bring glory to God as we offer them back to Him for His purposes to the praise of the glory of His grace. Father, to listen in to this prayer of Your Son as He lifts us up in Your presence and to know that for You, Father, for You, this is, this, is, this is just as much happening now as our very breathing. That You who are outside of time, this prayer is right now ringing in Your ears. And You are keeping it. And You are fulfilling it. And You are bringing it about because Your Son who has interceded for us, is even now interceding. Your Son, who tells us what a disciple is, one who belongs to You and believes the Gospel and is now following by grace through faith, that, that gives us the assurance that as His, Your Word cannot and will not fail. So Lord God, would You give us, even now, to look to Christ by faith, to trust Him for His completed and finished work, and to rest fully upon all that Christ is, has done, and promises to do for those belonging to Him. In Jesus we pray. Amen.